Luke chapter 18 this evening, beloved, if you have a copy of scriptures, Luke chapter 18. Continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a few weeks since we've been here, but we have progressed as far as verse 14 here. And we come to verse 15, 16, 17. So a shorter passage might be a shorter sermon, but don't hold me to that. <laughs> we'll see. But I didn't want to lose the emphasis by bringing in the interaction with the rich young ruler. So we'll just look at these verses that we have in Luke 18 from verse 15. Then Let's read the Word of God. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Amen. We'll end the reading of God's precious and infallible word at verse 17. And we'll seek the Lord for his blessing. Let's pray. Let's call upon the Lord. Our God, we come to thee. And again, we, we admit that one of the burdens that we carry as a church as well as families is for the next generation we can't help but have that vision that they may go on with God. And those of us with our own children have that peculiar burden that our, our own offspring might be favored with eternal life. Oh, we, we pray that as parents we would have the right frame in our prayers we want them to apply themselves to their learning. We want them to be diligent in the things that they have to do or the legitimate things that they desire to do when they learn numbers and when they apply themselves to grammar, when they seek to understand the world of the sciences when they become acquainted with literature, when they endeavor to explore history, when they begin to practice a musical instrument, or we, we want them to, to thrive. And we work hard. We work hard to try and give them the the best opportunity. Many parents here make great sacrifices to that end. But, oh Lord, please give us an understanding of the need to make sacrifices that they might know Christ, to always labor to put Christ before them, 
and in our prayers to prioritize the salvation of their souls. And O God, therefore I pray this night that not one of our children here would be lost, that each one would be soundly saved, that Thy grace would be shown in their lives. And I pray even for those that have sat here in years gone by, and this night there is a huge question mark over where they are before God. Maybe there is no question mark. Maybe it's blatant. As my grandmother used to remark, she was somewhat thankful that she had a very clear understanding of the spiritual needs of some of her children. There was no doubt they needed the Lord. So, God, we pray that thou remember such children that we know need the Lord. Oh, even hear prayers at this moment as they come to our minds. So give the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. Give attentiveness to the Word, and especially to the children. We would keenly desire that they pay attention with the help of God this night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm well aware sometimes, children, that what I preach maybe doesn't always sink in. At least some things may be missed by you. You don't entirely understand all the things that we deal with. And maybe, maybe this morning, some of the things that we dealt with, you weren't quite aware of, of what's being said, or you weren't understanding everything. And that happens. That happens. That's okay. I, I, I believe like Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he had the confidence that the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, would take the relevant parts of the sermon and break them down and, and give sufficient for all, no matter what level of maturity whether that be determined by age or understanding of Christian things. The Spirit of God gives what is sufficient and needed for each soul. But tonight, I hope it will be a little easier for the children to follow along. And it has a really important truth for the children, because we have in these three verses the fact that there was this incident in which parents brought their little ones to the Lord Jesus. And we have read of the disciples rebuking them and our Lord Jesus calling them to Himself, saying, Suffer, allow, allow the children to come to Me. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then goes on to apply a lesson for everyone, things that are important to us all. Now, what you have in verse 15 and 16 relates to real children. The word that we have translated here as infants in verse 15 is appropriate. They're very little ones being carried by their parents And the idea is they're very small, and they're being brought. In verse 16, still Christ is thinking about them. Verse 17, he moves it to a broader application or instruction in which he is saying that everyone should be like children in a certain sense. So you have this incident that's dealing with children themselves, and then another remark by the Lord Jesus, instruction by him that says, well, there's something that all of us have to grasp. When we look at children, there's something about them that should be found in all that come into the kingdom. And there's a distinction here. We should keep them separate. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he makes no mention of the instruction in verse 17. He doesn't indicate that. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. He doesn't deal with that. So, the, the, the 
matter of the children stands on its own. Stands on its own. It's important for us then to see that, to see the distinction here, that both aspects are true. There's something that is to be grasped here about children, actual children, and then something to be grasped by everyone. Now, there is to be a frame found in children that should be found in us all. So, tonight I've titled the message, The Kingdom is Open to Children. The Kingdom is Open to Children. And note with me, first of all, this is a message understood by the parents. It's understood by the parents that we have here, all right? Because you look at verse 15, boys and girls, they brought unto him, these parents brought unto Jesus also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So the first thing I want us to see here is that children matter to God. Children matter to God. One of the mistakes we can make sometimes is to imagine that those that matter to God are those that have the ability of rationale. So only that which is truly valuable to God is that which has rationale, rational creatures. But that's a mistake. Of course, we live in a time in which there is an elevation of, of creatures and animals and so on to a point that is not right. And uh, you see the craziness of people with regard to their pets and so on. And I'm not criticizing pets. Don't be get letters of abuse and emails or whatever. You're, you, know, you oppose me having pets or whatever. No, I, I don't. Pets are wonderful things. I had them growing up. My children would love to have certain pets as well. And I'm re- remaining resolved so far to this juncture at least. There's nothing wrong with them. But when we start elevating them, equating them as, as, as valuable as people, there's something wrong. And you saw this with, was it Harambe, the, the gorilla in Cincinnati Zoo some years back, in which uh, the, a toddler fell down into the area where the gorilla was, and they acted quickly, and they shot the gorilla to save the toddler, and there was all this uproar, you know, the poor gorilla... You know, it was as if it was the parents' fault. The gorilla shouldn't have had to have been sacrificed for that. And this kind of madness. I remember remarking at that time, I made a statement on Facebook about it. I said something to the effect that our Lord Jesus was willing to drown 2,000 swine for the deliverance of one soul. And it's not like our Lord, you know, again, acts in such a way that he promotes cruelty to animals. But there's such a value distinction between men and creatures that he is willing to see 2,000 swine drowned for the deliverance of one. And no doubt a million animals could be destroyed for the deliverance of one. So we mustn't adopt the, the craziness of the day in which we live, and yet at the same time, to understand that just because animals are not people doesn't give us the right to be unnecessarily cruel to them or careless in our stewardship of them. We're told in Luke 12 that God feedeth the ravens, we're told in Proverbs 12, or verse 10, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. This is an expression of his righteousness, that he looks to the needs of his creatures. And so I'm just making this point that we have to keep in mind that there's there, the value that God has for various creatures and see what he instructs from his word. Now, I say all of this because sometimes we diminish children. One of the reasons we may diminish them is because, well, they don't have a fully developed reasoning ability. And you start thinking about the implications of that. What does that mean for those who are born with disabilities? What does that mean for those who have disability later in life? They begin to lose their mind in some fashion. Do they lose something of their value because of that? 
No, we know that. I hope this doesn't need to be stated here, but state it just in case. That we all grasp that there, there, there's an inherent value in those made in the image of God. And so when we read this passage, and it's dealing with children, we have to see that they're, they're important to God. Oh, they may not be able to fully comprehend all that's going on. These infants are being brought to our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't fully understand all that is going on. But they still matter. They still matter. And our God cares for them from the point of conception. They matter. And so as a church, obviously, you have occasions when children are presented to be dedicated, presented to be baptized. Whether or not that actually matters doesn't change how God views the children. They matter to Him. And there is a peculiar outward favor that He has shown to those who are children of believing parents. An unavoidable aspect in which when God puts a child in the care of a believing parent, that there is a special favor, outward, common, an expression of common grace at the very least, if not more, in terms of His favor towards them. So, children matter to God. We see that from the passage. Also, Christ mediates the blessing of God. Christ mediates the blessing of God. Matthew's record explains that the parents desired Christ to lay hands on the children and to pray for them. And Mark tells us that Christ took them in His arms and blessed them. So, they came to be prayed for and the hands laid upon them. And Mark says that indeed happened. Christ took them and prayed and blessed them. And Christ had an interest in children. He had an interest in children. In fact, if you go through Matthew's account, if you, if you read sequentially through the Gospel of Matthew, you will see just over and over again his interest in children, in little ones. Matthew 9, he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Matthew 15, he heals the Canaanite woman's daughter. Matthew 17, he heals the demon-possessed boy at the, the, mount, the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 18, he takes a little one onto his lap in order to instruct his disciples. So anyone watching on would be aware then, the Lord cares about children. The Lord cares about children. They matter to Him. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't pass by as if they're not there. And this, this goes right back into the Old Testament Scriptures. The, the patriarchs expressed their, their care and, and concern for their children. Uh, the, the family figurehead would show the desire to bless children. The, even the priests, like you have Melchizedek, blessing Abraham. There's this idea that whoever the figurehead is, go to them for blessing. Sometimes it was an adult like Abraham. Sometimes you think of Rebecca also. She was blessed before she went to be married to Isaac as well, blessed by Bethuel, or we're not told who it is, but probably Bethuel. There's blessing upon adults, but also upon children. So the patriarchs bring their children to be blessed, to receive blessing. And this continues then through the history of the Jews. The, the rabbis would would be gone to by parents, and they would, they would desire blessing upon their children. And so it's not surprising that some of the parents at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, they, they see Him and what He is doing, and they desire to bring their children to this rabbi to be blessed. 
So as I've indicated already in Mark 10, 16, he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. It's a wonderful indication of Christ and his mediatorial work. This is what he does. He, he, he takes and he blesses. It's one of the final scenes that we're left with of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. The end of Luke's gospel, when we eventually get there, we will see that as he's ascending, his arms are out to, to bless his church. He mediates blessing upon people. But those people that he is willing to mediate blessing towards aren't just those who are out-and-out disciples, not just those who were appointed of the twelve or of the seventy, but even the children of anyone who believes, the children of any that come to him desirous to receive blessing. So Christ calls upon God to bless them. I don't know if you have given some thought to it, but when I was going over this passage, and my mind couldn't help but drift into a place, wondering, I wonder what happened to these children. I wonder what happened. I wonder, was there something specific Christ prayed for them? Maybe it was just the ironic blessing that He prayed over them. But what happened? Where did they end up? We don't know. So verse 16 tells us, Jesus called them unto him and said, suffer. The ones that he's calling relates specifically to the children. Jesus called them. He's calling the children. He's calling the parents with the children to him, saying, suffer, allow the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So we have in our own church the policy in terms of, of baptism, you're you can choose to baptize your children as infants if that's your conviction. You believe that to be what the Word of God teaches, providing you have a right understanding of even what that means, or not. And sometimes those who don't, they, again, they come for their children to be dedicated. But what I want you to realize, what I want, want you to think about is, regardless of where you are there, the children matter. And, ch- and, and parents are encouraged to bring their children to the Lord that He might bless them. Sometimes I wonder about that when someone sees, well, well, my children weren't baptized, maybe, maybe I'm losing out something there. Or, or my children weren't dedicated to God, maybe I'm losing out something there. No, not necessarily. I, I, think, I think there's, there's reasons and grounds to do these things, but I don't think you're necessarily missing out. You know, did the, did the thief on the cross miss out by not being baptized? Well, in one sense you say, well, it, certainly it's a means of grace, would have encouraged and strengthened his faith, but to what degree did he miss out? I mean, he's still in Christ. He's still brought into the arms of the Lord. So we, we shouldn't overemphasize some of the rites or practices of the church. But as I read this passage, it's, it's encouraging to me when the Lord says, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. It's not just that they are a future hope, they they are a present hope. Such is the kingdom of God. Of course, this is not necessarily saying that they are saved. His prayer for them wasn't that he was going to confer salvation upon them. But he sees them as those who are part, even now, of the kingdom of God. They're to be seen in that sense. Now, again, people are going to be all over the map here, I get it, but I want you to see how the verbiage is. They... Such is the kingdom of God. 
So I'm glad of our open policy. I thank God for our open policy. But this is one of the reasons why I hold the view that I do. That I, I, I look at Scripture and I see that children are part of it, the, the visible body. They are they're part of the visible body. They are not necessarily saved, not regenerate, but, but they're part of the body. Of such is, not will be, not we hope will be, they, such is the kingdom of God. Again, whether you believe it or not, whether you agree with me or not, it doesn't really matter in terms of the ultimate sense, because what is true is true whether we believe it or not. And this is where I think I first heard Dr. Cairns say this, and others have said it, you know, men are better than their stated theology. You know, we're better than what we state we believe, because we have imperfections, we have shortcomings in what we believe. And mercifully, the Lord isn't tied to what we state is true. He, what's true is true. And so when he looks at the children of his people, when he looks at those who are part of the body of Christ, he, he favors the, the, the means that are put before them. And he blesses the means that are put before them. And he uses the means that are put before them. And so whether or not they've gone through any rite or ceremony or whatever doesn't really isn't the main point. It's whether the means that he uses to draw sinners to himself are actually present in their life. But from my understanding, as I say, I, I see the little children as part of it. This is why I believe that they can, they can be covenant breakers. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, just for a moment to see some of the language that is used there. And this is looking at people with they've all the outward benefits, all the outward privileges. And they're being warned. They're being warned because they're in danger of despising what they have been given. They're in danger of rejecting the privileges that they have. They have gone through the rites of baptism. They have, they have sat at the Lord's table. They have been favored with the gospel Perhaps there are children there that have been instructed from their earliest years. Whatever the case, they're in the visible body. So, we'll read from verse 25 just for context. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins." but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. So he's been set apart. In some way he's been set apart, but now he's counting it an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I read that text and I ask myself, the Lord shall judge his people. In what way are they his people? Because the language of judgment here is language in which you're cut off. This isn't the fatherly discipline. This is not fatherly discipline. This is dealing with those who are in, they're in the kingdom in some way, 
They're made benef benefactors of those blessings that are in the kingdom. But now it's stated, and he's taken from the Old Testament, and he's saying it's true here, in this age, the Lord shall judge his people. Now he's not talking about the faithful. He's not talking about those who keep on looking on to Christ. He's talking specifically about those who are turning back, turning away. And so, I guess I'm just presenting the case to you as far as why I see that our children are placed in this privileged position. It doesn't make them converted. It doesn't make them believers. But it does make them part of a visible body. And that visible body is has mixture in it. It always has mixture. It doesn't matter what the church is. It doesn't matter how diligent the oversight is. It doesn't matter how strong the preaching is. It always has mixture. And so some, some profess and some don't. Some who profess, they just profess. They don't possess. They don't actually have it. And that's always the case within the body of Christ. But the mixture then includes the children of believers. And they are called then to the Lord Jesus. Going back to our passage, our Lord Jesus calls them unto him, allow the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. These little children are part of my kingdom. They've been blessed, favored. In the providence of God, they've been put into this environment in which they are partakers of kingdom privileges. They can't not be of the kingdom of God in terms of the visible expression of it. They can't not be. And so, our Lord Jesus then is the one who will mediate blessing to all and calls all to himself and desires everyone. Put it this way. If God has put the word of God into your life, he intends for you to respond to it. And if you don't, if you don't, then it'll be greater judgment upon you. But by putting you there, by putting you under the, the Word of God, and so these little children who aren't in control of where, they're, where they should be, they're not dictating anything, he is, he is saying, no, no, parents bring them to me. They, they must, they can't be forbidden because of my providence and, and the governance of God's providence. They are placed right here. They must be brought to me. That's the intention of putting them under your care. So this is a message understood by these parents. These parents understand this. They brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. When his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So boys and girls, the bottom line is, Jesus wants you to be brought to him. He desires it. He longs for it. He invites it. And you are welcome. The Lord Jesus has a love and care for you. Secondly, this is a message misunderstood by disciples. It is misunderstood by the disciples. Because when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So, two things here. First, the disciples rebuked the parents. They tried to prevent it from happening. They rebuked the parents. That is to say, they strictly charged them or admonished them. There's a certain harshness here in their tone. Certainly a very straight form of speech that's being used. And our Lord is aware of it. He hears it. He hears the tone and hears what they're saying and what is going on. Now the question has arisen, why did the disciples do this? What was their motivation? I mean, you children should be asking, why wouldn't the disciples allow the children to come to Jesus? 
Why would the disciples want to keep parents with their children away from Jesus? Why would they do that? And we don't know. We don't know the reason why. Maybe because the disciples saw Christ in terms of the the loftiness of the things that he's preaching, and largely what he's preaching is for adults. So let them carry on dealing with the adults in the crowd. Or, or maybe they saw him in the midst of all of his healing and his miracles, and so, so you have on the one hand, you have someone with, with a family member who's dying, perishing, has some real physical ailment or some tragic circumstances, and then you have on the other hand, parents with healthy children, just wanting them to be blessed, and they're, they're weighing this and say, come on now, come on, prioritize here. Keep the children and the parents away. The, the Lord Jesus has to deal with all these great needs and these sick and weary people. You could see the rationale there. And so they rebuke the parents, and they do so with such sincerity. <laughs> They thought they were so right in what they were doing. I mean, they were confident in this. You imagine? You know? That's, that's something you can surmise from someone who comes and rebukes you. You know, especially out of, you're kind of going a trajectory, you've made a decision, someone comes in front of you and says, says something contrary, rebukes you for it. I mean, one thing you conclude is they have a certain confidence about their opinion there. So the disciples were very certain very sure of themselves. And beloved, just take that to heart because we can be very certain about things and be completely wrong. Just wrong. And we're so sure that we're right. And we're not. All sorts of examples in Scripture. All sorts of examples. Sincere people giving themselves to something, thinking that this is the right mode of action. This is the right thing to do in the moment. Think of Uzzah, the toppling of the ark. I mean, he, was, he was sincere about what he was doing, trying to steady it. He touched it. He learned how wrong he was. I think it's something to take to heart, especially those of us who are a little more, let's say, opinionated, <laughs> tend to verbalize our opinions more, and I'm in a precarious position because I get up and talk before people and bring the Word of God, and hopefully with a certain kind of clarity to it, but at the same time, you know, I just was, was hit with a sense of, be humble, be humble. It's an important lesson for us all. So the disciples rebuke the parents, but Christ rebukes then the disciples. It's not given here. It's not given here, although there's an implied rebuke because they rebuke them and Jesus then calls them over. So even if we didn't have the record of the other Gospels, we would see here Christ in one sense is undermining their opinion of what should happen. But Mark again in Mark 10 says, when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. The idea is he was indignant moved with indignation, has a sense of a violent irritation. So this isn't some where Christ intervenes and said, you know, oh, don't worry, uh, whatever. But there, there's a certain anger reflected in his response here. A righteous indignation. 
toward the disciples. And our Lord sometimes has to teach us the same when we are wrong about things. But what can we take from this? What can we learn from this? I mean, what the disciples misunderstood is that the Lord Jesus never communicates a message to keep people away from the source of blessing. If someone desires to be blessed or longs legitimately for someone else to be blessed, that is invited. Broadly speaking, think of it generally. If we can think of Christ in terms of access to the means of grace, He invites to the means of grace. This is why we all should come to the house of God, because by divine invitation and by the appeal and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, He wishes us to gather, to worship, and to receive blessing from Him. And He desires us to take the Word. Take the Word. Take the Word of God. Read the Word of God. It was a blessing to be able to say of Timothy that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, they are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. His grandmother, his mother, they brought Timothy to Jesus. Brought him to the Word. Brought him to be blessed. Brought him to be instructed. And so he was. And we should be diligent in this. We should see that God is beckoning. Every Lord's Day, He is beckoning. Every day in the family, He is beckoning. Gather around the Word. Gather. Gather. Receive blessing from me. Don't go through days and weeks without appealing to heaven for divine benediction upon the home. Don't carry on neglecting the source of divine blessing. Bring your little ones to Jesus. Grandparents, bring your grandchildren to Jesus. Those of you who instruct little ones, maybe in another setting, bring them to Jesus. The invitation is there. And you may be in a difficult scenario in which you work for the government and you're not permitted. And the government then are like the disciples, trying to rebuke you for bringing little ones to Jesus. The Lord Jesus did not think too kindly upon such legislation. He despises such government intervention that would prevent, try to prevent Christian teachers bringing Jesus to little ones. Christ has an invitation for all. Of course, if you think about it in another sense, for the disciples... The lesser need here was children, or the ones unwelcome were children. That may not be the case for you and me, but there may be other demographics that we don't, that we struggle to welcome. There may have been a time in America where everyone was somewhat similar, somewhat similar. At least, you could say we're largely from you know, Europe or whatever, and we're all kind of gathered in the communities, and there's a lot of similarity in all of those communities. Of course, that's not the case now. There's much more distinction and difference across the nation. 
And what can happen then is that we all kind of huddle together as those that are all, these are, all, these are my people. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. God's people are my people. But when we take that kind of mentality and we shun, reject, cut off others from joining in, we do wrong. Boaz welcomed Ruth the Moabitess. And we are to have a welcome to outsiders. However they look, wherever they're from, whatever they've gone through, however different they may appear to be. I'm not saying that we adopt what they believe and we amalgamate in some strange ecumenical hands held together that unity is the priority regardless of truth. You know I wouldn't be saying that. I'm talking here about the gospel. The gospel which is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And that them that believe, where are they? They're across the nations. And they're of all stripes and colors and backgrounds and they're all different. And so our church, our manner of going about our business, our labors for the kingdom of God should not be like the disciples, shutting off certain people, feeling like, well, my message isn't for them. How, how much an error the disciples were. Then thirdly, this is a message illustrative to sinners. It's a message illustrative to sinners. In verse 17, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. There's something that the disciples need to grasp and everyone else, no doubt, around. There is a mentality, there's a frame in a child that you can learn from. He's already dealt with it in one sense. The language is different. The context in which it's taught is different. But you have it in the previous parable where you have the Pharisee and the publican. And they both go up to the temple to pray. And remember the last verse, verse 14? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There's a sense in which this is the same truth. It is the humility of mind. The humility that is seen in a child when it expresses and manifests implicit trust. It's not questioning. And the little child is being led around the mall. Mom or dad's walking around there. The child's not questioning every direction the parent takes. Just, just like following along. When the parent chooses to stop by the roadside before crossing, the child is there waiting for the move of the parent. It's not questioning. We're talking about little children here, little ones. I'm not talking about <laughs> those opinionated teenagers who <laughs> sometimes start questioning what mom and dad might say or do. Little children. That's his point. It's that almost oblivious state not comprehending all that's going on, 
simply looking to the parent. The guidance of my life is in the hands of this other one. Mom, Dad. I trust them entirely. Before they're speaking, they express that. You, you see it in so many different ways. Let me talk about terrible twos and things like that, but you know, most find out that <laughs> it was a lot easier when they were two than when they're 12 and 16 and 20 and so on. Because there's a sense in which, even when they're being a little cantankerous, the general frame of that little child is just trusting mom and dad. So our Lord says, this is, this is what you need to grasp. The way they're being brought and the trust that they have and the lack of, they're not rejecting. These little children who are being brought by the arms of their parents, they're not rejecting. They're not fighting against. They're not saying, no, mom, I don't want to go there. I'm not interested. No, no, they're just being carried. And there's just a implicit trust in the guidance of the parent. And Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as, this, as a little child. This is like, like just there. In it, trusting, resting, shall in no wise enter therein. And we see with our little ones, our little ones have this reception to the truth. Now sometimes it raises questions in our minds. When we disciple them and when we catechize them and they, they rehearse all the right truths and we wonder, has the truth penetrated the heart? Who made you? God. But do they really believe it? Well, we don't know. It's hard to know. But in their mind, they do. They do. And there's a sense in which that is teaching us something. It stands there as an instruction for us all. Having said that, you boys and girls, you need to listen up right now, and parents too. The danger then we can come to is, well... As long as I just have this implicit trust in God all my life, that's all I need. But it's not. It's not enough. The work that needs to be done in your heart is a work of God. Boys and girls, the actual true receiving of the kingdom is not just in the head where you say, I agree with these things. It is where you come to a point where you're willing to stake all on it. It's like, this is all. This is my life. There's nothing more important to me than God. There's no one I love more than Jesus Christ. And they, they matter more to me than anything. And so parents, parents, sometimes we, we just we, we have this mentality that we're just going to disciple, 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 teach, instruct, give them all the things that they need. Without praying, I'm looking for a real work of God. We need to see a real work of God. In John's Gospel, we're told what the Lord looks for and what He does for those who are truly His. John 1. John 1.
We're told in verse 11, he came on to his own, and his own received him not. There, there's rejection. They reject him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. How does this come about? They receive him. They are adopted. They manifest faith and trust and belief. How does it happen? Does it happen through good catechizing of the church? Does it happen through instruction as a parent? Does it happen simply because you put all the right material before them and they nod their heads at the right time and give the correct answers? Because that's, that's a real danger. A real danger. We're content simply with agreeable children. We're content that they agree with the things that they should agree with. And they can spot error and they know right from wrong and all the rest. But we're content simply with that. Parents do not be content merely with some head knowledge or some verbal assent to the truth. What you're looking for is evidence of a work of God, a real work of God that transforms their lives so they're born not of blood. All right? It's not because they're your children. They haven't come into the kingdom and certainly possessing the kingdom. They have access to kingdom privileges they're in one sense in the broader sense of the kingdom, but they don't come in to truly possess the kingdom simply because they were born from your bloodline. Nor because you tried really hard, the will of the flesh. Or because they tried really hard. And the will of man. They are born of God. They're born of God. Our children need to be born of God. So parents, you look at your children and I indicated in my prayer, my grandmother used to be somewhat, in a, in a certain sense, thankful that those children that she needed to pray for, it was very evident she needed to pray for them because they were wild, away from God, and she was under no illusions as to where they stood before God. The one that was faithful, had professed faith and was going on with God, it was very evident they knew God, the others who did not, they were in the world, it was very evident they were in the world, and she wasn't making any excuses for any of them. And her prayer for them was, they need to be saved. They need to be born of God. You know, as parents, we can fall into a trap of hoping for something that isn't really there. Hoping something's present that there's no evidence of. Don't do it. Don't do it, especially if it affects how you pray. Especially if you're clinging on to some vain hope or indication because they prayed something when they were younger. But there's no evidence, no evidence they were born of God. Just evidence that they prayed a prayer one time. Please, please, don't let your knowledge of their past suppress the prayer that needs to be offered for them in the present. They need to be prayed to be converted, to be born of God. I know you're fearful because if I start praying that way then I'm acknowledging that they're lost and then if they die in this state then they're lost forever. Better pray as you ought to pray. 
than to hold on to some empty hope. Because it will all be revealed on the last day. So, children, are you born of God? Boys and girls, do you know God? Have you turned from your sins unto Christ? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not complex. It's not hard. You children that understand the words that I am saying, you can do what you must do. I am calling upon you because the Lord Jesus invites you to him. Come. I want to bless you. Bless you with salvation. Bless you with the forgiveness of sins. Bless you with the adoption into my family. Bless you with the assurance that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want to bless you with all that the blood of Christ purchases for sinners. I want to bless it to you, boys and girls. You don't have to wait until you're 15. You don't have to wait until you're 20. You don't have to wait until any time. If you understand what I am saying, then it's for you to respond. And you should talk to mom and dad about it if you're not sure. You say, mom, dad, I don't know. How can I know? I want to be received by Jesus. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. Don't ignore it, boys and girls. Don't ignore it. Don't wait. Don't think other things are more important. This is the most important thing. And the verses, these three short verses, tell you that you matter to Jesus. You matter. But you have to come to him. He's saying, come. And you make a response. You either decide to stay and not come. You sort of just sit there. You don't act which is a form of rejection. You know that, you know. You get that call from mom, dinner, and you stay where you are. That's not just neutral, is it? It's not neutral. When mom calls for dinner and you stay where you are, outside or in the bedroom, and you stay where you are, that's not neutral. That's disobedience. And no doubt you've heard about it, but it's wrong. Because mom expects you to come. Straight away, dinner is ready now. Well, the call of the Lord Jesus is similar. When he calls little ones to him, and he invites little ones to him, when you stay where you are, it's disobedience. But when you come, confessing your sins, and believing, he will save me. He will save me. A little boy, a little girl, you will find it to be true. He will save you. And he will receive you. May the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. Boys and girls, I want you to take to heart what God has said tonight. I want you to think about it. Have you come to Jesus confessing your sins? 
Have you come to him asking that he might save you? Your parents can tell you how God saved them. They can tell you the story about where they were and what they did, and they ask, they ask the Lord to save them. They can tell you about that. But you need to write your own story. You need to come to the Lord yourself. Because you're a sinner, just like everyone else. And your sins will take you to hell. So Jesus on the cross died for your sins. To wash you, cleanse you. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. He will not turn you away. Lord, we pray that you will bless again as we've already desired this evening. Bless this congregation with children saved, soundly saved. They are participants in so many privileges of the kingdom. But they need the grace of faith and repentance. They need, O God, for thee to call them to thyself. So I pray, please, O God, bring them in. One by one, bring them in. And help each parent to keep on praying, keep on trusting. Help each parent to be realistic about what needs to be done in the life of their children. And may we always point our little ones to Jesus because they're sinners and they need forgiveness and they need to confess their sins. So God, please help us. Help us as we present the gospel in our homes every day. Give good success to every endeavor amidst all the shortcomings of every household. Bless the means of grace. Use it to extend thy kingdom. So hear then these our prayers. Be with us in our fellowship. Fill us with thy spirit for the week ahead. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.